Dad Joke Loading Podcast. My name is Christian, alongside my best friend and co-host, Chris. Uh, Chris, how are you doing this week? I'm doing excellent, my friend. I'm coming at you once again from the beautiful, expansive confines of my crowded walk-in closet um, here in Ontario. I uh, had a really, really good week this week. Um, we had a, a milestone, a childhood milestone this week, which has oh? made both me and my wife tremendously excited. Um, I, I wish I could insert like a little drum roll here. Maybe we can ask uh, producer Ryan to get that in for us. But I had the very first sleep through the night. No of way. My daughter this, yeah, uh, of my daughter this week. And we're now running three nights in a row. I can't believe I'm saying that out loud because I feel like I'm going to jinx it. You just, you, yeah, you're going to announce her jinx yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we're, you know, we're putting her to bed at like 8 p.m., and then I do a feeding around 10 p.m., like before I go to bed. And then that gets her through until maybe six or seven in the morning. So like eight to nine hours. That is hours. a game changer. It's unbelievable. I feel like a human. We have a, a, a return to a routine and a schedule again. It's incredible. Cloud it, nine, my friend. It's funny how much like a, an actual uninterrupted night's sleep feels like you're on drugs. <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. Because you're just like, what is all of this energy that I have sometimes? <laughs> I'm a new man. Yeah. Now tell me, Christian, this happened to you really early on, didn't it? Weren't you yeah. like uh, just several weeks in when this first happened to you? Yeah, I, we got really lucky. And I know I'm going to like lose a lot of fans here. But yeah, we were pretty lucky that fairly early on, even kind of as a as a newborn, we were still getting a decent four or five hours in a row. And, um, she started sleeping, you know, like that at least six, seven, sometimes eight hours, you know, probably solidly by eight weeks old. Now, obviously wow. there's some, you know, there were bad nights now and again, as there always are, but for the most part, um, even to now, yeah, she's a pretty constant, uh, set your watch to sleep through the night kind of gal. So, um, so I'm, I'm super lucky and I know that I, uh, am hated on now by a lot of people, but, um, <laughs> Well, on all of those hours of rest, you must have had a you must have had an action packed week. What did you get up to this week? There's so much room for activities. Um, <laughs> no, um, I uh, what did I get up to this week? Well, worked a ton. I feel like you know that's going to be pretty much what I say every week. But um, uh, I actually got into a new podcast this week. Uh, mm, believe it or mm, not. Um, so I we mentioned in one of our first episodes. I'll just keep it real short. But uh, we mentioned our podcast that we listened to. Long story short, love the Lebetard show. Uh, for those of you who who remember that first episode, anyway, they interview someone named David Sampson. David Sampson uh, was the president uh, of baseball operations for the Miami Marlins um, when they traded Giancarlo Stanton. Ooh. to the Yankees. So he's like the guy that shed all the payroll and was all part of that kind of thing. Anyway, he is just a like straight shooter, like tell it how it is like, Hey, this is the cold, hard business of baseball, like kind of guy. And he's completely honest about everything. Like he has mm. no shame about That's everything. really fascinating. And they, they pick his brain about everything because they're based out of Miami. So they're basically like, what the F did you do to the Marlins? He's like, yo, this is what we had to do anyway. So they talked to him about a whole bunch of things and it's really, really interesting. But anyway, he has his own podcast named called nothing personal with David Sampson. 
And he basically takes that same attitude and just takes it to all kinds of like current events, whatever's going on. He's like a business guy, you know, he politics, like you named the, the topic and he just kind of like straight shoots it. And it's actually kind of really refreshing because he's like, nope, I'm not going to beat around the bush. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. He's like, man, cold, hard world. This is how it is. And this is how things are done. This is how the sausage is made. So um, <laughs> it's actually a really, really interesting kind of refreshing podcast. Um, so, and it also like, you can tell he's like, yeah, I kind of know I'm evil, but, uh, but that's just <laughs> the mean, way that it is. Anything that touches the Miami Marlins, D Derek Jeter is America's sweetheart, right? I mean, he could be king of America if America had a king, but as soon as he touches the Marlins, everyone immediately, Ooh, Derek Jeter. Yeah. He's not, he's not what I thought he used to be. Yeah. That place is just, it's a tough situation to, to be running a ball club. That is for sure. What about you, man? What'd you get up to? Oh, not too much. I also got into a podcast this week. Oh. Uh, I have to name drop it because it's incredible. No such thing as a fish, um, which has nothing to do with, uh, you know, your cods and your trouts and your haddocks. It's uh, run by the four, four of the main researchers behind the British game show QI, which is a trivia-based game show. So these are essentially trivia researchers. Um, and I think they're four of the most incredibly smart, well-read people on the planet. Um, and basically the structure of the show is that each of them picks the most interesting facts that they learned that week, uh, and then they just expand on it. On each topic, they expand on it for, you know, 15 minutes, and you learn so much. It's so incredible. Interesting. The most interesting fact I learned this week is that uh, um, our, some of our listeners might find this interesting, since we'll have a lot of Canadians listening. So you've probably heard the expression, as American as apple pie. And, you know, you could fill in anything there, but that's a, that's a well-known idiom. Yep. So in the 80s, uh, Peter Zosky, a fairly well-known um, radio commentator on CBC, had his own contest for as Canadian as blank. And the winning submission was as Canadian as possible under the circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> Which just encapsulates our entire country in, in a single fantastic. sentence. Yeah, so that's about all. I got into a couple new shows, Dairy Girls, WandaVision, uh, watched the movie The Dig, um, and uh, did something pretty cool at work this week. Um, okay. we, helped, uh, we helped a very young, young dog with a very difficult medical condition, diagnosed with a pretty rare condition, um, congenital central diabetes insipidus. So essentially- Congenital. Uh, yeah, congenital. It's fascinating. It's only been described a, a few times in the literature, um, but every piece of the case was just a hallmark of it and uh, ultimately was diagnosed with that, treated for it, and immediately got better. So uh, feeling pretty great about it. Essentially what it is, you've got a little gland in your brain, makes a little hormone. Uh, so you have the hypothalamus makes antidiuretic hormone, which acts in the kidney to um, improve your urine concentration. And if you don't have it, you just pee and pee and pee this extremely dilute urine. And pretty simply, you have to replace that hormone, uh, which you can do with a medication called desmopressin, and uh, immediately got better. So that was a really rewarding case this week. Huh. And uh, yeah, I'd say overall a pretty positive week, my friend. That's good. Yeah. Well, since we've, uh, you know, we've also listened to ourselves, that's the new podcast you and I got into this week is ourselves, um, listening to ourselves. And, uh, of course, you know, neither of us being radio professionals, we are learning so much about ourselves. For example, don't talk into the microphone back here. Talk to the microphone up here. You sound so much so, better. <laughs> so we're learning more and more about ourselves. And I think one of the key things that we're learning is, uh, don't, don't talk for two hours at a time. So let's just dive right into our first subject. How do you feel about that? I'm Christian? in. Let's go feet first. <laughs> okay. 
So my topic on fatherhood and adulthood this week. Actually, gonna... Chris, I'm going to interrupt you. Yeah, go ahead. You. Go ahead. Go ahead. We got to thank some people first. Oh, of course we do. Yeah, we go got to thank some people first. So real quick, producer Ryan, thank you so much. Making us sound as, be- as good as we can, even when we talk at the wrong spot for the microphone. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. Ryan is so gosh darn polite. I mean, we are just train wreck disasters, you know, and he's like, hey, I just have one thing that maybe you should consider. Could you guys Thank just you, maybe not suck? Yeah, that yeah. would be fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Good um, guy, Ryan. Uh, Michael Spicer, intro theme, um, all the sound effects you hear on the show. Uh, wonderful guy. Michael Spicer, composer, Michael Spicer, music, Instagram, um, all that good stuff. Michelle Murphy. Uh, who is in charge of our branding, um, did our logo for all of the podcast episodes. Thank you so much. And of course, our wives and daughters for being not only the reason we are allowed to do this, um, because let's be real, they're allowing us to do this, but also the reason we are able to do this um, because they uh, they made us into husbands and fathers. So anyway, Chris, um, mm-hmm. as you were. Yeah. And I mean, that's another thing we learned this week listening to the podcast is that uh, Michael Spicer and Vishal Murthy are both much better at what they do than at what we do. Yeah, <laughs> so, 100%. Having essentially never seen the uh, artwork before, having never listened to the music before. Man, thanks, Michael. You are good at this. And thank you, Vishal. You are an incredible illustrator. So um, yeah, very eye-opening week. Anyway, I, I digress. Let's move on. So my topic on fatherhood this week is um, a, a bit of a difficult one, and I think one that maybe lies in the back of everyone's heads when um, you know becoming a father, and that is dealing with frustration. Mm. You know, what are the triggers that you have for frustration? What are the techniques that you have to deal with those frustrations? How have those frustrations um, evolved over time? So let's start this off with a pretty simple question, Christian. Okay. Can you think of a time in, in your daughter's life, since you became a dad, um, can you think of one time that stands out in your mind as a time when you got really frustrated and something that you learned from that time? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think it was, well, the first one that pops into my mind right away is one of the first times that I was the primary caregiver, meaning that I was home from work when my wife went back to work for the first time. Um, now it might not have been like the first day back at work, but pretty close. And so if you have been listening to previous episodes, we hope that you've been listening to previous episodes. I mean, you recall that, um, in New York state, we have paid family leave. So my wife was off for a little bit. I split my time a little bit. So I was off for a month after my wife went back to work. And so during that time I was obviously, she was at work. So I was in charge of the napping and everything in the middle of the, of the day and everything like that. And this was when I will admit that she wasn't sleeping as well as I literally just said that she was and I was bragging about it. So this is in the time when she wasn't. So maybe I deserve this. Um, But it was fairly obvious early on that, um, you know, our daughter needed uh, like to be fed right before she went to sleep. And so being a child that was primarily breastfed and still was breastfed when my wife was home, but she still had. Uh, bottle feeding during the day. And so it was, I remember this one particular time that she just wouldn't go to sleep and she had a fairly decent schedule, but it was like, you know, Chris, I'm sure as you're aware, you know, they miss one nap and the trickle down effect happens so quickly because they get thrown off and then they're cranky for this and then they don't eat for that. 
and then that type of thing. I'm sure you're familiar. Yeah, I mean they're just like they're just like me, frankly. You know, like if I'm if I'm you know in a busy workday and I miss a meal, every little thing just feels so much bigger. And I feel like that's that's a hundred percent what crankiness is. You know, is one tiny thing gets thrown off and every little thing becomes bigger. Uh, a little cry for having a wet diaper becomes a massive meltdown. And you know, instead of five minutes to go to sleep, it's thirty minutes to go to sleep. So every little thing just becomes magnified. I totally know what you're saying. Yeah, anyway, I'm sorry it, to interrupt. Go it's, on. It's it's me before I've ingested my entire coffee. Is basically <laughs> right, what it is. Exactly. Yeah, and so. I just remember this one particular day, she just, she was crying no matter what I did. You know, I feel like Chris, I feel like you have to have appreciate this in some regard where it's like, you have your kind of bag of tricks and you're like, okay, that didn't work. Let's go to the next one. Oh, that didn't work. Okay. You, you know, I probably changed her diaper three times just thinking like, oh, maybe she's still <laughs> wet. I don't know. Um, and she just wouldn't go to sleep. And I remember finally just like giving up because it was like past her nap time. Like she was only supposed to nap for, you know, because we don't want her to sleep for too long. And because then it throws everything off. And I was like, all right, I guess we're not going to sleep right now. And I remember just being so frustrated and disheartened that I just couldn't do it. And it was so frustrating, but you're trying to be calm and sing her back to sleep and lull her back to sleep. In the, but in the inside, you're just, you're raging about it. Cause you're just like, mm. why in the like ever loving God is this not working? And uh, yeah, you feel helpless and it's, it's really, really frustrating. And, you know, you start to feel a little bit resentful just kind of about the whole situation, which is, mm. yeah, I feel like that. I don't think any parent really wants to feel and, you know, doesn't I know that it obviously has nothing to do with my daughter at all, of course. Um, and because they're crying for a reason, they're tired for a reason, they're, you know, all these types of things. So but I do remember that really specifically that one day and just being like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I remember you telling me uh, before I became a dad, actually, after you became a dad, but before I became a dad, you said that when you're at the hospital, uh, you were forced to watch, uh, as part of protocol, a don't shake the baby video. Yeah. And I, rem I remember you saying that while you're in the hospital, you think, this is ridiculous. I'm never going to shake the baby. What are you talking about? And then like two weeks into it, it's two in the morning and they're shrieking in your eardrums. And all you can think is, God, I am so happy I watched that video. Did you have um, to watch anything like that when you were in the hospital? Interestingly, no. No, they they honestly didn't even bring it up. Um, it was an extremely hands-off approach. Again, we I mean, I, I don't want to say anything. We had such a great hospital experience, I, you know, uh, taking nothing away from it. But no, we certainly didn't have, you know, that kind of educational material. Yeah, we I had like a thing that they about. like had to like a nurse came in and like had to watch it with us. And we had to like sign something wow. saying we watched the video, which wow. again, when it was in the hospital, I was just like, this is so bizarre. Um, and then during those times, you're just like, not that I have ever thought about shaking my child. That is not what I'm implying. But when you get real frustrated, you're like, oh, right. that's so, why you watch the video. So that, that, of course, you know, begs the question, brings me to the next point. You know, you think of yourself those first few weeks in when you had that moment in the middle of the night and you were resentful and you were angry uh, and you were glad you had watched that don't shake the baby video. And to anybody listening, yeah, don't shake the baby. It's really, really bad. We won't go into the If you take one it. thing out of this podcast, that <laughs> is it. Baby. Yeah. Don't, don't do it. So, okay. So you're there at two in the morning and- now, if you had that same situation now, do you feel that you would be just as frustrated? Or do you feel that your frustrations and your sensitivities have changed over the many months that you've been dealing with this? I definitely have changed. I think it's because you, you have to be aware of the fact that you know, crying especially 
when you think about it, it's it's really their form of communication. It's mm. it's not because you, the parent, are doing anything wrong or you know, it's just it's it's the way they know how to communicate. And 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 also it 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 comes to the fact that I also had to keep in mind for myself for the most part, it's like, okay. You know, my daughter is happy and healthy. Okay, she might be crying at that very moment. But, you know, for the most part, you know, uh, healthy and everything like that. And you have to kind of take everything with a little bit of perspective um, to to understand that it's not necessarily anything you as a parent is doing wrong. Right. Um, and, and that, you know, you again, I talked about going through the bag of tricks. Like, you know, you feed her because she's still crying. All right, I changed her. She's still crying. Okay, I rocked her a little bit more. Okay, she's still crying. You know, and and these types of things. And as long as you, um, I don't want to say like as long as you've ticked off the basics because that's not really what I'm trying to get at. But you you have to keep in mind that they are trying to communicate something to you and and just being able to kind of just take a step back and and kind of just it's going to sound weird but kind of like listen to them and feel them a little bit i guess right, if i can call right. it that because uh any parent that's listening will i'm sure uh you know feel this to some degree but i mean children are so intuitive and even at such a young age they pick up on your body language and that's mm. another thing i learned too which is just like if you are if if i'm frustrated and i'm agitated i mean they pick up on it so that was another thing i had to learn which is like you have to be calm in the face of adversity um because that's your child benefits more from that than you than we realize absolutely and i, I mean you're i think I couldn't agree more. My daughter's three months old and I, I palpably notice a difference between if I'm riled up and trying to calm her down versus if I'm calm and trying to calm her down. And no child um, responds to frustration that well, right? Like even now, like my, so mm, my absolutely. daughter's almost uh, like 20 months old, 21 months old. And if I get frustrated with her and I'm just like, do this, like they don't respond to that. Be like, All right, so you know, yeah. So summarizing it as, as tip number one, you know, uh, approach with a bit of a Zen philosophy, understand that where they're coming from, that they're just trying to communicate to you unhappiness and every single parent in the world, you know, our parents, both of our parents, every parent in the world has dealt with a crying baby. There is no baby on the planet that has, that, that doesn't cry. And so this is normal and they're just communicating that to you. So try to remember that that's tip number one. Um, but delving into, well, I think tip, I think tip number one was don't shake the baby. Yeah. So, okay. like, yeah, so that's tip number two. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. Tip number one, uh, do not shake the baby. Tip number two, Zen philosophy, uh, tip number three, stay calm yourself because they will pick up on that. But delving into the specifics, Christian, did you ever have any specific techniques that you felt helped you out? Were there was there anything that consciously you do or uh, techniques that you have that keep yourself calm? Not techniques that calm her down, but techniques that you know prevent you from having that moment at two in the morning where you're angry and resentful. What do you do to keep yourself happy? Um, actually, so oddly enough. The thing that I do to calm my daughter down is the thing that calms me down as well. Um, and that is singing, believe it or not. Mm. Um, so I, uh, if you guys have listened to the previous episodes, avid musician, avid vocalist uh, over here on this side of the microphone. And so I love to sing to my daughter. My daughter loves it when I sing to her. 
Um, and so there's sometimes one in the same, and that is very actually helpful for me, um, which I mm. find is good. Even just that kind of moment of, uh, like you mentioned, kind of pause, reflection, whatever it is, uh, and that type of stuff. The one thing that I, it's, it's going to sound, it's not really maybe like a particular tip, I suppose, but I, I feel like, and we talked about this in our second or third episode, I believe, just about how our perspectives have changed since becoming fathers. But keeping everything in perspective is so important that sometimes I have to take that step back and um, not forget the minutia, maybe, but um, to not maybe focus on these such small things that are causing the frustrations, mm, um, right. you know, because I feel like that is something we get, we get caught up a lot of times in just the minutia um, of certain things that keeping something in a perspective, which is again, a happy, healthy child um, that is just doing their best to try to communicate with you is not something that should lead to resentful uh, thoughts or feelings. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, and that can, that can yeah. spiral too, because if you're starting yeah. to feel resentful, then you become more of a negative person and that can spill over into how you interact with your wife. You know, how you, I was just about to daughter. say that I was like that, then, then that goes into that drives the wedge in the parenting team sometimes for sure. Absolutely. Because if my wife or I are really agitated, tired or whatever, we get snippy with each other sometimes. And then we both have mm -hmm. to be like, hold on, you know, like, yeah. wait a second. Like that's, you know, let's talk and about think, what's really happening here, blah, blah, blah. I think one of the keys, I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're almost 10 years in with, with both of our partners. Um, you know, one of the things about understanding conflict with your partner is understanding their triggers and their emotional side, you know, and where they're coming from, um, how they're feeling, you know, why they might be feeling that way. Like, are they really angry at you or are they just super tired and hungry and frustrated? And how um, they respond to certain um, emotions, you know, like right, some, right, uh, one where one person responds to say extreme fatigue in a certain way, some might respond to it in a different way, you know, whether it's, uh, with anger or, you know, whatever it is. Um, so just knowing that specifically and being able to identify that before jumping off the handle. So I'm going to ask you following up on that, I'm going to ask you a bit of an introspective question. If it's, if it's even possible, because we might not know these things about ourselves, but what are your triggers and what do you feel are the things that you know are going to tip you over the edge more than maybe they ought to? You know, things that, that you know are, are, are going to send your frustrations over the edge even when they shouldn't at this point many months in. What do you think those are? Well, if I'm talking about with my child specifically... Yes, um, sorry, and, not, yes. not with your wife, sorry, okay. with, um, yes, with your child. Um, I, I think my, and this is something I know about myself, um, and I learned this actually very early on. Uh, to make a long story short, uh, I was a camp counselor for a, a whole bunch of years uh, back in the day, and I learned this about uh, communicating with children, and, and Chris, I'm sure as you are a little bit yourself, you know, as intellectuals, um, we, um, I have a very kind of deductive reasoning type brain and children do not. And so I can't explain something to my daughter 
you know, in a, in the way that I would explain it, say to another human, meaning an adult or a client or something of that nature, because they don't understand the reasoning behind. I'm very much into the, the why and the how and, and this type of thing, whereas just my daughter, you know, it's, it's very uh, practical and, you know, I mean, she's not even two, right? So, I know myself that if I get into an over explanation of something and I do this with mm. adults too, uh, when I get into an over explanation that then completely loses somebody and then I get frustrated because they're not understanding me. Um, so that is something that I know about myself that definitely can spiral me out of control. Um, for sure. Especially when you're trying to, you know, get your kid to behave, um, you know, or not to do a certain thing. And then they're giggling at you while doing the thing you just told them not to do. Uh, Chris, it happens at before 18 months of age. So just <laughs> I'm be aware. Not looking forward yeah, to that. Just be, yeah. a, be aware um, because they have that damn cute face and they look at you and go, hi, Dada, while doing the thing you literally just told them not to. And you can't laugh. You can't get mad, but you have to explain to them why it's not okay, but without over-explaining it to them. And that's something I struggle with that gets me really frustrated. I know I just have to take a step back, kind of reroute, um, because then we talked about the whole they pick up on your intuition or their intuition. They pick up on you, and uh, and then it's just it's just downhill from there. And then I'm kind of like, nope, I'm done. And, you know, then I have to either, you know, tap out or just kind of, you know, breathe and reset. <laughs> You're two seconds away from saying, well, my dear, the reason you can't do that is that I'm going to sell you for scientific research and be free from the burden that you've placed on my life. Oh, I mean, I love you so much and I'm so sorry. And, and really what I mean is just uh, please don't don't smack the dog on its head. That would be great. That, thanks. Thanks very much. Yeah. Uh, what, what the reason you can't do that is because then I will put you in a basket and float you down the river. No, no, sorry, you're right. Sorry, you're just, let's, you know you can't just you can't put the dog's food in your mouth. You just you can't. So let me ask you. Uh, let me ask you this. We've talked about triggers, and uh, you know you've talked about singing, which I think is absolutely incredible. I mean, that's that's. All, I'd love for you to sing me a bedtime story, Christian. <laughs> um, we lived together for three years, and not once did you sing me a bedtime story. That's oh, you well. I did. You might have just already been asleep. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So what uh, what coping mechanisms do you have? You know, how do you deal with those moments where, you know, you talk about needing to take a step back? Is there anything that you consciously do to help you to cope or, or things that you might suggest to other dads out there to help them cope with that problem? Well, one thing I would certainly suggest, and again, I, I certainly do not sit here as an armchair expert by any means. Um, I am in an armchair, um, but I'm not an expert, um, is... Much like something that I've actually taken from our years in vet school, and Chris, I'm sure you can can recall this a little bit, what they what they taught us in vet school or tried to teach us as part of it was just, you know, being a veterinarian is part of your life. It's not your entire life. And so while, yes, our children become our lives, I think it's important to, um, not, not that I'm going to go down a whole self-care uh, rabbit hole here, but... I think it's important to still make sure that we are consciously taking time to, uh, you know, mentally, uh, you know, emotionally, spiritually, whatever you want to call it, kind of uh, stimulate and satisfy ourselves. And so, like mm -hmm. I said, like we talked about, like for me, for me, that is music. Um, sometimes, even at the end of a long day, um, even if my, even if I'm exhausted and, and and frustrated or whatever it is, even just doing something as simple as um, I. Uh, Quick aside, I love to build Lego. I know that sounds like I'm six, 
but I love to build Lego, specifically Star Wars Lego. Have a nice little collection here in the house. And so even just that type of like puzzle or something like that, that just is that little time to yourself where you can uh, take care of yourself doing the thing that you love, I think is super important because I think sometimes we we do lose ourselves a little bit in in our identity when we become parents, especially yeah. new on there, because we focus so much on our children, which is still very important. I'm not saying, yeah, they'll be fine. Don't focus on the kid. Um, but you know, in those moments, making sure and dedicating time for both partners, uh, husband, wife, or, you know, whoever your spouse happens to be, um, you know, dedicating times to make sure that they are getting the self-care that they need. So for my wife, she just loves to sit in the bubble bath. And so sometimes, you know, she'll just be like, hey, Christian, like, I really need to just sit in the bath for 45 minutes. And I'm like, yep, you go ahead. Like, I got her. Don't worry. And making sure we're kind of doing those things for each other. So I think it's super important to consciously make time for that. Because if you do, I feel like the um, uh, propensity to get frustrated, I think, goes down a little bit because then you're still taking care of yourself. Tremendous advice. Uh, I couldn't agree more. A hundred percent. My wife and I were talking about that this week, that it is extremely easy to fall into this pattern of being a, a mom and a dad rather than being who you were before having a child, yeah. uh, rather than being a husband and wife, being all the things that made you happy beforehand. And it is so easy to put that pressure onto yourself to say, I'm not doing a good job if I'm, you know, uh, engaging in my hobbies. And that it, you are doing a disservice to yourself, which in turn makes you do a disservice to your family because you're not the happy person. You're not the energetic person. You're not that enthusiastic to be home person that you ought to be. And it's very easy to fall into that trap without noticing it. And so you need to see that in your partner. You know, your your wife needs to tell you to be the person that you are. You need to tell your wife to let them be the person that they are and, and find the things that they enjoy. You should never feel guilty about doing the things that you enjoy uh, to allow you to be the best version of yourself. Well, and it's not um, selfish either, right? Like it's not selfish to want to do those things. Like you're not, you're not selfish for wanting to take some time for yourself. That's called just being a human being. Like it's not, not so, and I mean, uh, uh, Chris, we, I mean, this is a huge rabbit hole, so I'm only going to say it in a sentence, but like, isn't that kind of the, the biggest problem with, with being veterinarians with veterinary medicine? Mm, mm, yeah. Right. Yeah. Like it swallows you in it your identity you. and you it, need, and we get, we feel, we put the guilt on ourselves for quote unquote, not doing a good job because we want some sort of work-life balance. And you define yourself through that light. Uh, absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head and, and listeners, we're going to, we're going to dive into that topic with a bit more detail in, in, in the future, a topic that deserves its own. Foreshadowing. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I think you've you've really covered this very well. And uh, you know, if I can encourage people to do anything to take home, it's find those little things that you enjoy. You you should not feel guilty. Um, the best thing that you can do for your child is to be happy. That's the best thing that you can do for them is to be positive. And in order for you to be happy and positive, it needs to be for real. You need to be happy and positive inside. And to do that, you need to find the things that make you happy and positive. Um, you know, we we talked about triggers and coping mechanisms. A very simple one for me is my trigger is that really, really high pitch shriek. Um, when a cry gets mm. really out of control, you know, and it starts to rattle the eardrum. Um, I think all of us get that inner feeling of like, oh my 
God, why is this happening? And it's not that uh, normal cry. It's not that like, okay, she's crying. It's that there's that specific cry that yeah. you're right. It's <laughs> yeah. just like, it might as well just be like, they might as well have just ripped three of your ribs out. Cause you're, yeah. yeah. Yep. I got it's, you. It's somehow originating from like the inner sinuses. You don't even know how it's happening. Um, yeah. And, and, and I mean, for me, it's, it's noise canceling headphones, you know, and it's uh, calm music and it's podcasts and the things that make me happy. Mm. Um, and that balance of saying, well, I'm maybe less responsive to, to the subtleties of her vocalizations, but I'm also, I also lengthen my endurance and I keep my positivity. Um, and I think, you know, whether that's building Lego, watching hockey, going for walks, listening to music, going in the bubble bath, what, you know, seeing friends, be yourself be the person that you were before you had a child and you will be the best father that you can be that way recording the podcast with your best friend yeah yeah absolutely well i think that's a great time to wrap up this topic christian so we're going to take a break here on the dad joke loading podcast i'm chris that's christian and we'll be back to you in a bit Welcome back to the Dad Joke Loading Podcast. This is Christian alongside Chris, uh, and we're going to jump right into uh, a recurring segment, um, which has become one of our favorites, uh, but an eye roll for everything else, for everybody else, I should say. Um, and this is uh, very conveniently named the Dad Joke of the Week. Now, Chris, before I actually get into this, I do have to do a quick flex for the show, if I may. Go ahead. Uh, the the trombone that you heard there, um, did you know that that is actually um, the trombone player for Celine Dion who recorded that for us? Are you for real? I am for real. Michael Spicer Music coming through with the connections. Oh, no way. I actually had no idea. That's actually really, really cool. I honestly thought that Michael had like a library of these things. That's the actual trombone player for actual real life Celine Dion. Correct. Yes. And I did get his wow. permission to, to say that, um, because I wanted to make sure, uh, that Hell that would yeah. be okay. But yeah, that's Celine Dion's trombone player who, uh, took time out of his day to record, uh, to record a sound effect for us. We couldn't make this more Canadian unless I had a double double in my hand. Good Lord. You don't have one in your hand. <laughs> I mean, I'm a pretty Canadian guy, but it's 10 o'clock at night. So All I, right. Fair enough. Fair yeah, enough. Yeah. I got a rye whiskey. Does that count? That that, that absolutely counts. That absolutely all right. counts. All right. Um, all right. All right. But, so hit me. Yeah. Hit me. But, well, but before I get into the uh, the dad jokes themselves, really, because um, I do have a couple that I want to kind of share with you today. Um, I just kind of have a question for you, which is, uh, do you know when a joke becomes a dad joke? Hmm. That's a good. Is this like a philosophical, theoretical, rhetorical question, or do you have an answer? To I have this? an answer. Hmm. I, oh boy, I would say, I'd say there has to be a bit of a pun quality to it. Like there has to be a bit of wordplay. Uh, it has to be a deadpan one-liner, and it has to be not something that would make you, you know, instinctively belly laugh but where you more laugh as an acknowledgement of the appreciation of the, of the word craft. That's, that's what I'm going to go with, but I'd like to hear what the, the actual answer is. Well, I know a, a dad joke, a joke becomes a dad joke when it becomes apparent. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Ugh, I, I walked into it. I mean, I just, I, for a second, I, I, 
I mean, for the I I did not think that you had a joke there, and then I heard that little smile in your voice. I don't know if the listeners heard it, but just that that little turn to the lips, and I thought, oh God, it's coming. My it's coming. my cheeks hurt through his entire answer because I'm sitting here <laughs> on the on the video portion of this, just trying not to laugh. Whereas I Chris is coming in with this just. You know, mm, yeah, okay. You know, just like actually trying to give me a genuine answer, and I've just got a shit-eating grin across my face. So, all right, well, well done. All righty, well I got you with that one. Um, one point. Yeah, that's right, and one point. Um, all right, so uh, we've got a couple of of dad jokes here. Chris, do you want to start out with a home repair joke? Do you want to start out with a music joke? Um, I've got a couple other ones here. An awards joke. Which one do you want to start with? Well, since you, uh, I mean, you were talking about your beautiful serenading. We've had uh, a good musical talk this week. So I'm going to say music. All right. Uh, what did the drummer name his two kids? I don't know. What did he name the two kids? And a one and a two. <laughs> very good. Very good. Very good. Very good. All right. Hit me up with awards. Did you know that they uh, gave the inventor of the knock-knock joke an award? Uh, I did not know that. Yeah, it's the Nobel Prize. (laughs) (laughs) So dumb. I mean, you just, you expect them in Christmas crackers. I'd say that's the other time of year where, where you're Oh, yeah, those that. things. Yeah, and you have the little crown that you, the, the <laughs> tissue paper crown you put on your head and the terrible yeah. jokes. Yes, that is when a joke becomes a dad joke. That's a, that's if, a legitimate answer. And for any American listeners, definitely one of the Christmas traditions is that a Canadian Christmas cracker has, you know, the little piece of paper in the middle has English on the front and French on the back. Mm, yes. So every family with their, you know, grade 11 broken French sits around the, uh, around the dinner table and goes, huh, bonhomme de neige. Uh, I think it's funny because they're talking, it's snow. I know that they're talking about a snowman and then, you know, and then you immediately move on when someone breaks their paper crown over their head and you all laugh about that instead. But that's, that's a Canadian Uh, tradition. (laughs) All right. What was the home repair you said was the other one, right? Yeah. 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 Let's go with that. Most people are shocked when they find out how bad of an electrician I am. Are they shocked? That's the joke. Yes! <laughs> yes! Oh, oh that feels good. Yeah. I'll take that one. There's, I'll take that one. Yeah, they're shocked when they find out. Yeah. <laughs> Better than electrocuted. That would get morbid really quickly. All right, last one for dad joke of the week here. Um, and uh, it goes like this. So a termite walks into the bar, and he All looks right. around and he says, Where's the bartender? Okay. No, that's the joke. He wants to know where the bar is tender. He's a oh termite. My God. He eats the bar. Where's the bar tender? Where's the bar tender? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed way too hard at that one when I read it, that my wife was just like, what are you laughing at? And I told her the joke and she was like, oh, God. And I was just like, well, that one's going in the episode because I got what I wanted out of that. Uh, but those, are the, uh, this, those are the jokes that I have. So. Listeners, this, this, I mean, you know, we're talking about fatherhood and how it changes your life and, you know, the important life transitions. But really, this is what happens when you become a dad. This is the greatest joy. 
All right, Christian. Well, that was fantastic. You've brightened up my evening. Let's move on. Let's move on. All righty. Uh, we're going to move into our next topic of conversation here. Um, and it has a little bit of a parallel to um, our careers as well as our, um, you know, family lives being uh, being fathers and that. So, Chris, I'm going to kind of start you off with a few questions related to kind of our careers as uh, veterinarians. Um, but then okay. kind of parallel it a little bit to fatherhood. And we'll kind of jump back and forth mm. a little bit to kind of prove my point. And my kind of general topic is going to be excuse me, things have things that we stress about in the beginning that with time and experience um, become easier to deal with. Okay. And um, so I'm going to start actually. So I did a little bit of an informal poll with some of our friends and colleagues, uh, some of whom listen to the show. Thank you very much. Um, and we have listeners. There are people that listen okay, to this. Some, no, some, surely. No, surely. Some people who told me, they listen to the podcast. Um, oh, okay. So, yeah. like your so, mom and dad, you know. Like, I basically yeah, asked my mom. Of course, we do, dad. my yeah. sweetheart. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so, my question to them was, and this is specific to veterinary medicine, um, were things that they, I, I asked the question, things that stressed them out in the beginnings of their careers that now, with time and experience, they have become more equipped to deal with. Okay. And so I'm just going to list off a few of them. And then I'm going to get your thoughts on this. Again, this is specific mm, to veterinary okay. medicine. Okay. So I'm just going to I'm read really you. I'm really excited. I'm just going to read you the list here. Uh, dealing with angry clients. Trying to work up complicated cases with limited funds. Uh, blocked cats. And for those mm. who are the non uh, of the non-medical uh, field here, a blocked cat is the layman term for a uh, traditionally male cat who is unable to urinate due to an obstruction in the urethra. Emergency, very serious, very complicated. Uh, being on my own for the first time, so working on their own for the first time. Uh, angry clients again, you'll see a pattern here. Um, <laughs> surgical complications, um, dealing with patients having seizures, uh, being double booked. So, you know, running, mm. running very busy. Um, the vague, the vague sick patient, um, angry clients. Again, you'll notice a pattern. Um, <laughs> third appearance. The third appearance the on the top client. 10. Yeah. Um, not having the answers, breaking bad news to clients and owners um, and client communication. So I thought that was an interesting list um, of the people uh, whom I asked about this. Uh, but I'm curious, Chris, when you started out now, yours, I was going to say your start out was a little different, more so meaning that rather than going directly into general practice, you did the uh, internship residency specialty kind of way of doing things. Um, but I'm curious when you were specifically starting out and actually, you know, taking on cases yourself for the first time, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that way, which was probably in your yeah. internship, I suppose. Yeah, my internship, um, yeah. what, what, what do you recall early on in your career as a veterinarian? That was something that really stressed you out, um, or something that you really maybe felt either unequipped or unable to deal with that now with time and experience, you are much more able to either cope with, deal with or, um, or that type of thing. Oh, wow. That's, I mean, that's an incredible question. If I'm being honest, I mean, if I, I, I could talk for hours, um, about, about the things that I've We'll lose listeners if you advice. do that. So yeah. maybe let's talk for minutes about it. <laughs> yeah, okay. okay. I'll do my best. Um, 
So medically, definitely the, the very simplest first thing would be what we call a coding patient or, or a patient who's going into cardiorespiratory mm. arrest. So um, either halting breathing or uh, presenting to the hospital with a stopped heart um, and, and needing to initiate CPR. Um, when you first start out that, I mean, you have absolutely every single piece of your body is pumped with adrenaline. Your mind is going a million miles an hour. And sort of to, to cope with that, you try to, you find your role in the code and you just stick with that role, but you feel like you should shy away from a leadership role. But very quickly in an internship, because of your, I mean, you're overnight in the middle of the night managing a fair, fairly full ICU, um, you're having to deal with codes on a weekly basis and you're the only doctor in the building dealing with them. And so you have to take the leadership role. And what that does is it forces you into a level of comfort and you just have to accept that this is happening and every second will pass and you have to make decisions as those seconds go by. Um, and so needing to be in that position where you are managing others, um, that's something where the first couple of months, I mean, you're, you're, you have this almost paralytic feel, fear running through you and then you very quickly uh, are forced to adapt. So I would say medically, absolutely dealing with immediate time sensitive critical emergencies um, where you don't have the ability to look up something. Um, you know, when you finish veterinary school, when you're first, you know, you, your, one of your biggest resources is books. Um, just that ability to look something up in a textbook. Um, and uh, you do not have that luxury in a cardiorespiratory arrest. So that I would say easily, easily, that is the single biggest thing that I worried about early on, where now if I dealt with it, it's still stressful. There's no question. You still get that adrenaline running through you, um, but you feel very comfortable taking on a leadership role um, or, 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 an, or a non-leadership role, just fitting in and kind of surveying the team very quickly. And within a couple of seconds realizing what your role should be in that um, and, uh, and and so that's something that's changed I would say on kind of a more holistic level I would say um, preparation uh, for little things is is a big one so I remember early on you know if I had uh, like when I started my residency I think the first week I had a cystoscopy so uh, you, you know using a little camera to um, enter the urinary system and evaluate the bladder and the night before and the morning of you know you're getting two hours of sleep because you're staying up until two in the morning watching every video you can practicing the techniques, even basic things. How do I unwrap and set up the scope? Just very technical, physical things. How do I enter the patient? How do I, you know, rotating as soon as you enter the patient, let alone before you get to what's normal versus abnormal. Waking up super early in the morning to get there super early to do like an hour of preparation on the patient, just, you know, typing everything you can, reading everything you can to get everything set up. Um, and that kind of internal stress and pressure um, really starts to fade away. And you get a comfort of, of kind of walking in at, you know, in the morning and saying, yeah, I got a cystoscopy. I'm ready for it. You know, yeah, just, yeah, tell me, tell me what you got. And so that kind of feeling of when you get something you've never dealt with before, not having this internal feeling of, I need to prepare the hell out of this. And if I don't do hours of prep, I'm not going to be ready for it. Just kind of rolling with the punches. I would say that's another big one. And then the final thing I'll mention is uh, you had mentioned client communication and I wouldn't say so much. I, I mean, it still is always stressful. Breaking bad news is one of the most difficult things you could possibly 
possibly do. I would argue the most difficult thing that you do in veterinary medicine is emotionally coaching people through grief and loss. Um, but I would say uh, the ability to just pick up the phone and kind of dive right into a conversation and have that comfort level with the way that you walk through things. And I would say the biggest change in a specific way for me was having almost a roadmap in my head of every single time that I meet a new client and I'm having a new conversation um, based on whether it's a new appointment or whether it's a new uh, hospitalized patient that I've just met in the ICU and I'm speaking to the owner for the first time, that you have this sort of I don't want to say patter because that makes it sound like it's just banter, but uh, a specific roadmap of the things that you want to talk about, the order in which you're going to talk about them, the questions that you want to address, um, and that you don't feel sort of stressed going into it because you have this pretty good coping mechanism of a, of a roadmap to follow. Um, and that takes a lot of the stress away. So I would say, I would say those things. Number one, dealing with immediate critical time-sensitive emergencies like CPR. Uh, number two, um, sort of the preparation time behind procedures and just the ability to roll with the punches as things develop. And then number three, having a, a roadmap for client communication. I would say those are the things that I found stressful early on that, that faded as I uh, developed a roadmap for it. Hmm. No, those are, those are really interesting and, and, and interesting to hear it also kind of from your perspective, as like I said, coming from an internship residency background, um, as opposed to, uh, the, the general pact, uh, practice background, but I'm going to just, get you to expand a little bit on the the general kind of change from being stressed out about it to not. Do you think that was a either conscious or subconscious internal thing within yourself that you had to realize? Um, or do you think that that was, um, I guess, how much of it was just having the repetition, you know, you said the cystoscopy, doing it enough times, do you know what I mean? How much of it was repetition versus how much of it was um, the internal um, kind of either subconscious or conscious kind of, uh, whether it's emotion or whatever of dealing with it yourself, if that makes question. sense. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, certainly a bit of column A, a bit of column B, definitely. Um, I would say, though, to your point, there is it's not just repetition. It's not just that you're doing it over and over again, and so it becomes easier. Uh, I mean, maybe CPR because you know you you put in the hours preparing for it, but when it happens, you know you don't have time to remind yourself of how you should think in the scenario. You're you're really just reacting right. um, more than thinking. But I would say certainly for you know point number two when it comes to um, uh, you know, preparing for procedures, there, there is, there comes a time when, you know, you get up at five in the morning and you think, uh, and you're on your way to work and you think, ah, should I have, should I have gotten up earlier? Should I have prepared more the night before? You know, I've done one of these before. Is this okay? You know, there is a time where you are consciously saying to yourself, do I know enough? Um, am I ready for this? And you sort of push yourself out of your comfort zone and you say, well, I just have to dive in and I just have to trust myself that I know what I'm doing. Um, and I think if you don't do that, you will never, ever reach a point where you say, I am comfortable because you're always hmm. sort of keeping the training wheels on yourself. And at a certain point, you have to say, I know how to perform a, a foreign body endoscopy. I just know how to do it and I can do it when someone calls me at two in the morning and I don't have to be ultra prepared, prepared for it. Um, and so some of it is repetition, but at a certain point, you also are consciously saying to yourself, I, I just got to do this. I, I got to push myself, my own little baby bird out of the nest and tell myself, can I fly or can I not? 
So I, I'd say certainly some of it's repetition, but definitely uh, a good chunk of it is um, telling yourself you need to be ready. And if you don't, um, if, if you don't, if you don't take that leap of faith, um, you'll never have faith in yourself ever. And so you do need to take that leap of faith. So then that transitions me into kind of the the parallel, I think, with becoming a new parent. And mm -hmm. because what you were just saying there, I think, applies so heavily to uh, in its concept to, um, you know, being uh, well, I guess you and I will speak about being dads, uh, you know, being dads for the first time um, and this type of thing. So I'm curious because I know my answer. Um, and as the listeners may remember, uh, my daughter is um, close to 18 months older than than Chris's daughter. Um, so is there something? Well, maybe, Chris, you can answer this and maybe not. But is there something specifically when your daughter came home from the hospital in the very early going that you were so focused on um, and so stressed out about um, that maybe now you are less so <laughs> with uh, with the time that you've had with your daughter? I realize it's been a short three months, um, but I'm sure you know, as you are aware, a lot has happened in those three months. Um is there something that in the uh, in the immediate, you know, home from the hospital kind of right away that you were extremely worried about and nervous about that maybe now you are less so maybe with time and experience and maybe with uh, letting your little fatherly baby bird leave the nest? Yeah, boy, that's a that's a good question. Um, hmm. Well, I've been, I was thinking about it as you were asking the question, and um, I'm going to give you two sort of specific nuts and bolts type answers of things that on a, on a nuts and bolts basis, I really worried about early on and have faded a little bit from my thought process. And uh, one kind of general idea, general concept that applies to a bunch of different things. So number one is the amount that she's eating mm. uh, on a specific milliliter basis. Um, I, I mean, my wife and I, in, in those first few weeks, it was, well, she ate 27 milliliters, 33 milliliters. What, 33 is more than 27. Does that, what, should, should she be eating more like 33 or should it be more like 27? Um, you know, when you get, you get scared about the weight loss, weight gain, uh, you know, everything you read about the amounts they should be eating. Of course, one of the biggest challenges is when they're breastfeeding, you can't measure that. And so, you know, you're just saying, well, it was 24 minutes. Is that enough? Well, what's the flow rate? You know, and you're hyper analyzing the amounts. All of a sudden, um, boobs become IV pumps. <laughs> right. Exactly. What was the fluid but rate? Except, except IV pumps have those little digital indicators that tell you the volume infused up to this point. And this is just like, well, I, I mean, she's not crying anymore. Is that a good thing? I guess that's a good thing. Um, and, and that's really the only thing that you, that you have to go on. Whereas now I would say we have just so much more comfort in the leeway of saying, well, she ate until she was full and she's going to tell us when she's full. And if she, if she, you know, re rejects the bottle, then that's the biggest indicator. So maybe more watching her reactions rather than watching amounts and numbers, I would say when it comes to feeding is, is, a, is a really big difference between those first few weeks versus now three months in. Um, the second one I would say is, I mean, I, I, I wonder if you relate to this, Christian, because my my parents have mentioned that, of course, they, they worried about this when I was a baby. But, um, you know, it's this blessing and a curse when you're falling asleep and she's uh, making some noises, you know, cooing or, or whatever. Um, it, you think, well, she's alive. And then as soon as she's silent, you know, like a normal baby falls asleep, 
your first reaction as a parent is, oh my God, I should check if she's breathing. She must not be breathing. Um, and so I would say just being comfortable with silence and not worrying about every moment of silence and sleep being, well, she's clearly obviously suffocated uh, and I need to immediately go and check this out. I mean, when I, in those first couple of weeks, I'm not ashamed to admit that there are times where you're falling asleep and you, and you think, oh, she's fallen asleep. She's, she must have died. And you get up and you go and check. Um, whereas now you, th uh, the opposite, you know, she, there's silence and you think, Oh my God, she's finally asleep. Thank goodness. Um, so I would three say nights a in a row through the night. Am <laughs> three I right? Nights in a row. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, on a more general level, I would say I had mentioned in the feeding sort of the idea of hyperanalysis. There's this concept that I once talked, um, with one particular patient that I had about, um, it's a concept that I like, I like to describe in medicine as rain dancing. Um, so we think about how a rain dance developed, and it was the idea of, you know, before we had any scientific ability to evaluate um, the, the cause of rain and what caused rain uh, and when it was going to rain, when it wasn't going to rain, the idea that rain is going to happen regardless of what you do. It's going to happen sometimes, and it's a, a lot, and it's you're going to go into a drought sometimes, and you're not going to have any rain, but all of that is going to happen regardless of what you do. But then you're going to sit down there not realizing that you have no impact on those things, and you're going to hyperanalyze everything that you did as a potential cause of that rain or not rain. Um, and so in this, in this medical context, in this patient, it was, well, I gave the medication at six and this happened and I gave the medication at seven and this happened, you know, and you think, well, I know on a pharmacological basis that that had, that meant nothing to what happened the next day. You know, we are hyper analyzing and rain dancing the idea of what little things that we do, uh, have these other implications down the road. And I would say early on, it's so easy to say, oh, well, I slightly changed the blanket conformation this way, and I slightly did the diaper differently this way, and I put a little bit more cream on this way, and I did a 60-40 split of milk and formula instead of a 70-30 split, and to sort of overanalyze all of those changes. And I would say one of the things that's changed now three months later is the idea a little bit more of accepting you know, what you can't control and saying, these things are going to happen regardless. She is going to cry sometimes regardless of what you do. She's going to wake up in the middle of the night sometimes regardless of what you do. Um, there are things that are, that you don't have any control over and your job is not so much to analyze what you can do to make it perfect, but rather just how to react and adapt to what does happen. Um, so I would say the, the third big thing that changed was, you know, having that, that kind of rain dancing attitude early on where you're looking for every subtle little thing that might have an impact, um, versus now kind of rolling with it and saying, these things are going to happen regardless of what we do. It's really funny you say that because, and I don't even know whether or not you realized it, but you basically gave me the same answer to both questions. Um, <laughs> meaning that the, your veterinary medicine answer in its core was the exact same answer, mm, which mm. was hyper analysis, um, and kind of either emotional overreaction or, uh, you know, um, what's the word like, uh, not fear and anxiety, but kind of, and to then relying on intuition and experience and um you you also mentioned kind of freeing yourself from the pressure of perfection 
um, which is uh, very interesting. And no, listeners, we did not rehearse that. Um, I was just sitting back smiling, pleasantly surprised. Um, and I didn't even know what the questions were going to be, for goodness sake. <laughs> I think that's part of the genuine kind of, um, you know, aspect to the show, I think. Um, yeah. And so... And the, the reason I'm kind of asking these questions is because, and so the, the thing for me, uh, I'll kind of go into a little bit. It's actually kind of funny. It's, is it very Canadian of you that you guys measured everything in milliliters? Because um, we did. <laughs> what? I honestly don't know what it would be. Do you measure it in ounces? We do ounces. Yeah. Really? Oh, wow. I had seen. Yeah, absolutely yeah, not. Must, I had no idea. Must be a, a south of the border thing. Um, what do you ounces. do in the hospital? Do you have ounce syringes or how does that work? You know what? Um, so no, in the hospital, we, we do milliliters. Uh, yeah, so it's really funny on my medical, on my medical side, like in the professional side, everything was in, in milliliters. Um, but from a, uh, a bottle or milk feeding my child, everything was in ounces. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So uh, that that's really fascinating because of course, you know, the pediatrician who's giving you advice would probably give that advice in milliliters and then need to internally convert it to ounces. I remember during my internship, the biggest differences compared to my residency were temperatures were Fahrenheit versus Celsius. Weights were often pounds at first, but then you still had to convert it to kilograms. Everything's like a mig per kg. Milligram yeah. per kilogram. Yeah. And then a couple of just laboratory variables like uh, urea and glucose had, had very slight slightly different and creatinine at very slightly different values. But um, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. So all of your baby bottles then are in ounces. Correct. Is that right? Wow. No, I had no idea. And just cool. a quick aside, which is really funny that you were mentioning that um, uh, a friend of mine who was um, an internist at the, at the college we both went to. So Benoit, um, who hmm. is from France yeah, now working, now working in Ireland um, whenever I kind of just consult him on the case, you know, he'll be like, oh, what was the blood glucose? And I'll tell him and he'll be like, what? And I'll just be yeah, like, yeah. I'll be like, Benoit, American. 300? Yeah. What are you talking about? I'll be like, Benoit, yeah. American. And he's just like, oh, right. Because yeah. like to him, it should be like 27. You I know? love Benoit. I, I don't think he'll be listening, uh, but I have to say, Benoit, if you are as a resident mate, thank you so much for being such a good mentor to me and a good friend. And, you know, we were talking about those moments of being stressed out about cystoscopy. He would be the guy that would wrap his arm around me and be like, no, nah, man, don't worry about it. It's OK. But don't in just stress. that beautiful French accent that he has, yeah. too, so like, <laughs> yeah, which made it yeah. so much better. Anyway, yeah. we digress. Um, but what, what the thing for me specifically um, was poop. <laughs> and, and go on we my wife and i were so uh, because like you mentioned um you know with your daughter in the immediate um you know coming home from the hospital which was the weight loss and then the weight gain right trying to so our daughter experienced a little bit of that too so we were very focused on the inputs and outputs which is something we talked about in a previous episode but we were so focused on how much she pooped um, and peed and all of these types of things. We actually had an app that was called baby tracker, um, uh, which was actually very handy. And, you know, you can sync it to your, um, phones and, you know, you have your account. And so it had our baby's name and all of her things. And, um, we even had a baby scale at home. We would weigh her all the time, um, and, and things like that. And we would just be inputting all of this information and like have all these data points on the graph that were just like, you know, it was you um 
you can't you couldn't really quantify the poop necessarily um but you know it either had a um it was kind of like if you could have a poop emoji and a baby app there was like one little poop versus two little poops versus it's like three plus poop you know on like the thing instead of like a dipstick yeah. three plus proteinuria and it was like three plus poop um and like all <laughs> these types of things and then we would be doing that too well okay she you know for the um and then there was also then uh, you could put in how long she breastfed. So you were talking about how how do you measure that? So we would have it in there and our app would say, well, at 6 p.m. it was 17 minutes. And you could even do it left boob versus right boob. And all these types, like it was, there was all, so many data points, you know, that we were trying to interpret and put all together. Same kind of thing that you were mentioning. And then after a while, we and our pediatrician even teased us about it because she was just like, Oh, yeah, I give you a couple of weeks before you're done with that. And we're like, What do you mean? There's all this information and we can figure out all of these things and like this and that. But we like you, you use the word hyper analysis and we would. And and whether we were intrinsically using it to make decisions or not, I have no idea, but it was definitely something we focused on, especially when. Uh, my wife went back to work and then again, neither we weren't always home together. And so it was our way of kind of communicating with each other what our daughter had received. Uh, but again, it was like, okay, she had a one plus poop earlier today and whatever. And it looked like you could write in the description if you wanted and all this type of stuff. And, and then after a while, we just kind of stopped. And I don't even know why or what changed or necessarily, but you just intrinsically, like you mentioned, become more comfortable with your intuition about, you know, about reading your child um, and, and, and being able to react. And like you said, roll with the punches um, mm, and, yeah. and, and that type of thing, which is something that to any new father out there or new parent or, um, someone going to who wants to become a parent or is about to become a parent. I don't even know that I could give you an answer as to how, like, there, I don't think there's any way to teach that. Mm. You know, I think we can be here for each other with experience. And again, I know, Chris, you and I have talked a bunch of times just because obviously me just being slightly, um, I'm going to say ahead of you chronologically, um, just in this in this journey a little bit, you know, and those types of things. But it's it's just something that you learn to much like in veterinary medicine. Um, not that I'm calling our children our patients, but you learn to read, um, you know, the situation. You learn to rely on your intrinsic knowledge um, and and that type of thing in order to um, improve yourself and become the best version of yourself. And I think that's something that often gets lost and you used a term which i thought was interesting which is you know you said if you always keep the training wheels on you know you're never going to learn how to ride um and so i think sometimes even as parents and and for whatever the reason is perhaps you know it doesn't necessarily have to be with uh you know what kind of poop is in the diaper necessarily um or anything like that or how many mills but it can be with anything that you're talking about whether it's a new subject you're trying to teach them or a situation you're trying to you know whatever if you get locked into you know, the hyper analysis of the, of the minutia, um, you can potentially lose the overall goal or focus, mm, um, which is, which is an interesting, um, which is kind of interesting concept that I feel only is really, really understood perhaps with hindsight. You know, I guess I can only really talk about this with any level of comfort because, you know, now I don't track my daughter's poop anymore. And sometimes even my wife and I will admit, we'll be like, did she poop today? 
I'm like, uh, I don't th- was that yesterday? Did I? Yeah. And every day kind of blends into right. the last one. And then, well, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, COVID has also really done a number on that too. Cause we'll be like, is it Thursday? And they'll be like, nope, it's Monday. And I'll just be like, I don't know. So, it, well, she pooped on Thursday. I can tell you that yeah, much. That, that I am confident that she pooped on Thursday. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah. uh, and so, yeah, it's just a really interesting concept. But then I guess uh, my question for you is then as well excuse me, um, is do you find then that because of that, and I'm going to ask this, and I'm not even sure if there's necessarily an answer for this right away, but is there a change then? Because we talked a little bit kind of about roles and, you know, who does what and this type of thing. And now you mentioned like, um, okay, congratulations again, three nights in a row. I'm going to keep bringing it up. Um, <laughs> yeah. is, I can't get enough of it. Keep it going. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I feel like I'm saying perfect game, you know, like I'm going to announce her jinx, you know. Um, but you got that no-no going. You got that no-no going. That's right. Um, have you noticed then a change in how you and your wife then approach certain things. So now that you have this, um, do you notice a change either between the two of you or then, or between, or then also the change potentially in your team approach Mm. to, to any of these things? Hmm. You might be too early on to maybe be able to answer that really effectively, but I'm curious. I mean, I, I think it would be fair to say and I don't, I don't think I'd be off base in saying that, you know, she and I probably have slightly different mentalities in our analysis of certain things, or, or at least the things that we analyze, if okay. that makes sense. Yep. You know, we might be watching different things because her role and the things that she's doing every day um, are, are different, perhaps, in some respects than, than what I'm doing. And so it's very fair and understandable of her to, to you know, be analyzing things that are that are different from me. Um, I would say our team approach is maybe one of less mutual worry. Um, You know, each of us is there to calm the other one down if there's something that we're more stressed about. Whereas early on, even if we're, even if we're doing our best to calm each other down internally, you know, we're both stressed about the outcome. Sure. Um, Whereas now, you know, our team approach might be a little bit more that one of us at all times has a mentality of the baby's going to be fine. She's going to be just fine. And our goal is to take care of the other person, you know, me to take care of her, her to take care of me, um, you know, because we have less mutual worry uh, about the survival, uh, you know, of our daughter. So I, I I mean, it's a, we're still pretty early on. We're only three, uh, three and a half months in now. So I can't say that that's not going to change with time, but I would say certainly, Right now, it might be that we're focused more on keeping each other calm rather than worrying about uh, about her more so. Interesting. Okay. I was just curious because, you know, there's definitely, you know, as you mentioned, we analyze different things um, just based on, you know, things that are intuitive mm. to us one way or the other. So I was just curious if that was something that was kind of just a question that came to me in the moment. But uh, I'm going to close out this segment really quickly by um, just saying there was uh, one of our professors in in veterinary school, uh, Dr. Brad Hanna, if you remember Dr. Brad Hanna, something Mm. he said that always stuck with me, um, which I apply in its core to a lot of different things. And you kind of mentioned it with the rain dancing effect, which is, you know, there are some, there are some patients that are going to get better because of what we do. There are some patients that are going to get better regardless of what we do. And there are some patients that are going to get better 
in spite of what we do. And I've always kind of just brought that with me because um, you kind of mentioned the um, feeling of just being able to understand um, kind of the um, the overall, like you mentioned, you know, like they're going to be okay. They're, they might cry, regard, you know, and that's okay. They might do this and that's okay. Um, and so that's Absolutely. Just something that I, I brought with me. A hundred percent. I think that things happen or in the context of medicine, animals get better uh, or worse in spite of what you do. But outside of medicine, that life happens in spite of what you do is something that I wish I could could tattoo on myself. I mean, I suppose you, I can, right? But, you know, I can just do it right now you, with the ballpoint. You pen. could tattoo it on yourself, yes. Um, yeah, but I, uh, I think that's just such, I mean, that's, that's my philosophy of, of life, whether it's right or wrong. Um, you know, life happens regardless of what you're doing. And your job is to sort of follow the basics and keep your eyes open, um, but respond rather than feel like you're in control, rather than feel like your actions have consequences and what are, what is every little thing that I do uh, going to result in rather to keep your eyes and ears open and say, what's the situation right now? And, and learn from the scenario rather than feel like you dictate the scenario. Um, and it's a, it's a difficult thing to wrap your head around. Uh, but when, when you do, um, man, does your stress level go down? Mm -hmm. yeah. Definitely. Definitely. And I think it actually makes you a better version of yourself too, you know, because then you're yeah, actually absolutely. able to, to give your best, uh, maybe either unbiased or un, um, tethered, uh, you know, ability or, or, you know, towards a particular situation. Uh, but anyway, I am going to dictate contrary to our partner statements, the end of this segment, and I'm going to deem it right now. So we're going to take a quick break uh, here on the dad joke loading podcast. Uh, before we take a quick break though, uh, we want you to get in contact with the show. Uh, I forgot to say that off the top here, dad joke loading podcast at gmail.com questions, uh, comments, recipes, concerns, trivia facts, podcasts you like all this type of stuff. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, so again, dad joke loading podcast at gmail.com, but we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back with a really, um, I'm looking forward to our next segment. Um, and I'm sure Chris is too. Um, and we'll, We'll then do one more final little segment and then wrap the show up. But again, this is the Dad Joke Loading Podcast. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Dad Joke Loading Podcast. I'm Chris here with Christian coming at you from Ontario and New York, talking to you about fatherhood, life, adulthood, a little bit of sports, everything in between. So we'd like to close out this episode with a, a tribute to uh, someone who in, in Canada would be considered um, one of the most important fathers, perhaps in the minds of all Canadians, um, something that you and I can relate to, Christian, someone referred to as Canada's hockey dad. And that is the father of the great one, the greatest hockey player to ever play, Wayne Gretzky. His father, Walter Gretzky, uh, very sadly passed away um, this past week. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been a time where as a country, um, many tributes have poured out to a really incredible person and someone who not only left a great impact on um, his family, but on this entire country. So there's a few things that I wanted to, to briefly mention as a tribute to this, this great person. You know, Walter Gretzky is often thought of in Canadian circles with his association with hockey. You know, right away, you think of, you think of hockey, you think of the greatest hockey player to ever play, and you think of his dad, Walter Gretzky. 
Um, and one of the things that Wayne Gretzky is famous for is for playing with an idea of playing where the puck is going to be, not where the puck is. So he was a very cerebral, intelligent player that predicted the play. I remember my dad telling me as a kid that what was different about Wayne Gretzky was that when he was coming in on a breakaway, every other player was looking at the goalie and the open spots in the net, whereas Wayne Gretzky was looking at the glass to watch for the reflection behind him of the people behind him to know where the rebound might go and to know whether there were people behind him. And that was just the type of player he was. And Wayne Gretzky attributes that entire mentality to Walter Gretzky. So, you know, one time he, he uh, I'm reading a quote from Wayne Gretzky. He said, some say I have a sixth sense, baloney. I've just learned to guess what's going to happen next. It's anticipation. And it's not God-given, it's Wally-given. Of course, Walter Gretzky-given. He used to stand on the blue line and say to me, watch, this is how everybody else does it. Then he'd shoot a puck along the boards and into the corner and then go chasing after it. Then he'd come back and say, now this is how the smart player does it. He'd shoot it into the corner again, only this time he cut across to the other side and picked it up over there. Who says anticipation can't be taught? Um, and that's, you know, that's what he's famous for in Canada. But what I believe that Walter Gretzky should be famous for is for being a great father. Um, he was an incredible role model who taught humility, who taught um, the importance of family. Uh, uh, Wayne Gretzky often talks about how family focused his father was and how he often said, I don't care if you're the best hockey player in the world. All I care about is that when you do something, you're dedicated to it and you do it with kindness and respect. And what an incredible lesson for all of us, especially in this era, you know, in this life where so many parents are pushing their children to be as the best they can be, faster, better, higher, stronger, accomplish more, make more money, earn more, get more awards. He was a dad who simply said, be a good human. And he took the time to be with his children. Um, I'll read what Gary Bettman said, the commissioner of the NHL. This was a, you know, a regular Canadian civilian whose passing prompted um, uh, a speech from the commissioner of the NHL. That's how important he was to this country um, and to all of those in this country who are dads, who have dads, which is all of us, and uh, for all of us who play hockey, which is a, a significant chunk. He said, although he never skated a shift in the National Hockey League, Walter Gretzky's influence on our league and our game was profound. He embodied all that is great about being a hockey parent, teaching the game to his children on the famed backyard rink he built in his beloved hometown of Brantford, Ontario. Walter instilled in them not only an uncommon understanding of ho hockey's essence, which we've just talked about, but a love and respect that has become synonymous with the name Gretzky, all while ensuring that the game was fun to play, just the epitome of a good, uh, a good human being. So I'll share, uh, you know, um, the, the funeral, which was a public funeral, just happened this week. And uh, Wayne Gretzky gave a very touching um, speech uh, about him. And so he, uh, he shared one story, and uh, I just wanted to share it with you here. He said, you know, so as time went on, he was always nice to every grandchild. Every grandchild loved him, close to each and every one of them. They understood how important he was not only to our family, but to the culture of Canada. He came here, his family, as an immigrant, which I can relate to because my mom came here as an immigrant as well. They came here because he wanted a better life. I don't think I've ever met a prouder Canadian than my dad. And all of my five children, this is Wayne Gretzky's children, are American, born in the United States. And I always tell them that you should be as proud of the United States as your grandfather is of Canada because that's how much he loves his country. And I always tell my kids that there's nothing better in life than family. 
My dad would come every year to our summer house. My sons, Ty, Trevor, Tristan, they had a hockey school and dad would always come out. He'd always go to the rinks, sign autographs like he always does. We were playing golf one day and he's picking up all these golf balls. And I'm like, we have all these golf balls. What are these golf balls for? Keep in mind, this is Wayne Gretzky, multi, multi-millionaire. He can afford a couple golf balls. So finally, the next day, Ty, Trevor, and Tristan, my friend Mike and Tom, they're in the fairway, they're in the rough, they're grabbing all these balls, and I finally grabbed them. I said, you guys got to stop grabbing golf balls. They're like, what do you mean? Your dad wants them for the kids. I said, I know he wants them for the kids, but I know he wants me to sign them for the kids. So I take my dad to the airport at 5 a.m. Sure enough, we get to the airport, there's two giant bags, and my brother Glenn, he runs out of the car, he's going to get a cup of coffee, and my dad goes, oh, you'll sign all these golf balls for the kids, right? I'm like, oh my God. So there I was signing for hours, but that's the man he was, always caring about whether the kids were happy. He was a remarkable man who loved life, loved family. We would all be a better world if there were many more people like my dad. And I hope we all feel that way. And I think that uh, you and me, Christian, I hope that someday that's exactly what our daughters think of us. Um, that's certainly what I think about my my dad, my dad's a topic we'll get into in a later episode. Um, but Walter Gretzky was an incredible human, a life very well lived, um, one of the best Canadians that there ever was, um, and uh, I think a role model for everyone out there who wants to be a father. So that's this episode uh, of Dad Joke Loading Podcast. We hope you've had a, a great week, uh, and I hope you've had a, a great time uh, hanging out with us for the past hour or so. Um, we'll, uh, we'll be back here next week to talk to you about uh, subjects in fatherhood, adulthood, a little bit of sports sprinkled in, um, everything about growing up. And uh, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, please email them to the dadjokeloadingpodcast at gmail.com, dadjokeloadingpodcast at gmail.com. We'd like to send some thanks as well, Michael Spicer, for the incredible music and sound. Uh, our producer, Ryan, just an incredible job, Ryan. Thank you so much for all the work you do, honestly, from the bottom of our hearts. Vishal Murthy, uh, vet cartoonist for his incredible illustrations, and of course, our wives and daughters. Thank you very much. This has been the Dad Joke Loading podcast. We'll see you next week. Have a good one. See you next week.